You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle, and Happy New Year. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there today. Happy New Year, everyone. This is episode 98 of Lighthearted, scheduled for January 11th, 2021. On January 11th, 1908, the Grand Canyon National Monument was created. And on January 11th, 1935, Amelia Earhart became the first person to fly solo from Hawaii to California. On January 11, 1755, Alexander Hamilton was born. He became the United States' first Secretary of the Treasury in 1789. An act of Congress passed on August 7, 1789, created a federal lighthouse establishment under the Treasury Department. In his role as Secretary of the Treasury, Hamilton was in charge of the lighthouse establishment. The lighthouse historian Cheryl Shelton Roberts wrote, Quote, in a very real sense, Hamilton was the first superintendent of America's lighthouses. Many of the letters exchanged between President Washington and Secretary Hamilton discussed the needs for lights to mark dangerous sections along the eastern seaboard. Hamilton did a brilliant job of persuading Congress, then reluctant to spend money on aids to navigation, to build the first federal lighthouses, unquote. I hear we're going to Maine in today's episode, Jeremy. Yep, you heard right. Today we're going to talk about one of the most beautiful light stations in Maine, Pembrokewood Point Light in Bristol. And our guest, Trudy Irene C., has written a new book about it. Michelle, please help me tell our listeners about Pembrokewood Point and Trudy Irene C. Sure, Jeremy. Pemaquid Point Lighthouse is one of the most frequently visited attractions on the Maine coast, receiving about 100,000 visitors each year. The name Pemaquid is said to have its origins in the Abenaki Indian word for situated far out. The point at the entrance to Muscongas Bay to the east and Johns Bay to the west was the scene of many shipwrecks through the centuries. In May 1826, as maritime trade, fishing, and the shipping of lumber were increasing in mid-coast Maine, Congress appropriated $4,000 for the building of a lighthouse at Pemaquid Point. A rubble-stone tower was built and the fixed white light went into service on November 29, 1827. The original tower didn't last long, possibly because the builder may have used salt water to mix his lime mortar. A new 30-foot-tall conical stone tower was built in 1835. Isaac Dunham of Bath, Maine was the first keeper at $350 per year. Dunham and many of his successors kept animals, including chickens, at the light station. Dunham was also an inventor, and he received a patent for a system he developed to keep lamp oil from congealing in the winter. In 1837, Congress authorized the Treasury Department to adopt Dunham's improvements. A fog bell was added to the station in 1897, and steam engines were installed to operate the bell. Apparently the system didn't work very well, because in 1899 a striking machine was installed, powered by a hand-cranked clockwork mechanism. The bell house built in 1897 was adapted with the addition of a tall tower to enclose the weights for the new mechanism. On September 16, 1903, while Clarence Marr was keeper, 
the captain of the fishing schooner, George F. Edmonds, tried to run for South Bristol Harbor in a gale. The vessel was driven by a strong gust into the rocks near Pemaquid Point and was dashed to pieces. The captain and 13 crew members died in the wreck. Only two were saved. The captain of another schooner, the Sadie and Lily, also died near Pemaquid Point in the same storm. In 1934, the light became one of the earliest in Maine to be converted to automatic acetylene gas operation. In March 1940, residents voted at a town meeting to authorize Bristol's selectmen to purchase the property, except for the lighthouse tower. The surrounding property became the town's lighthouse park, and the keeper's house was later converted into the Fisherman's Museum, which opened in 1972. In May 2000, the Lighthouse Tower was licensed by the Coast Guard to the American Lighthouse Foundation. A chapter of the foundation, the Friends of Pemaquid Point Lighthouse, was formed. The group soon restored the entryway to the tower and began holding open houses. Trudy Irene C. completed a PhD at the University of Maine. In addition to being an historian and journalist, she's also an educator and photographer. She has 17 books in print. In her new book, Pemaquid Point Lighthouse, she uncovers the fascinating story of this iconic main location, as well as the lightkeepers and their families, from the construction of the first lighthouse through the present day. I had an opportunity recently to speak with Trudy Irene C. about her new book. Let's listen to that conversation now. I'm speaking today with Trudy Irene C., author of the book Pemaquid Point Lighthouse. Thank you so much for being with me today, Trudy. Oh, you're welcome. I have a lot of personal history with Pemaquid Point Lighthouse and the area around there. I've been to the lighthouse, I don't know how many times over the past 30 years, and I've written about it in uh, some of my books. But I want to thank you and congratulate you for doing such a great job pulling so much information together. I'm sure your book will serve as the best source of information on Pemaquid Point Lighthouse for a, a very long time. Starting out, I'd like to talk a, a little bit about your personal connection to the place. Uh, in the preface of your book, you talk about your personal connection to the main coast in Pemaquid Point, including your first visit to the lighthouse with your brother. My brother actually spent his formative early years in Maine with my mom. She um, was a photographer's assistant. So she worked out of Maine, and he stayed here with some people near Old Orchard when she was out of state. And he developed a relationship with Pemaquid Point. Soon after I came here from Montana, I've been here for 30 years, which is, well, maybe not quite, but it's getting there. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, um, my brother rented a house near Pemaquid for a week, and he asked my daughter and I, Swan, to come down. And I said, of course. So we went down and we, you know, went out on the rocks as far as we could go, probably a little too far, actually, knowing what I know about the place now. <laughs> but at any rate, so uh, the next year he then called and said, Trudy, I rented the house again and we can't go. So do you want it? Of course. So that was on those two trips. I actually started photographing the lighthouse. And those are the earliest ones in the book, the black and white from my old film camera. You know, I'd been in Maine for a little bit and of course, love the coast of Maine, and it quickly became one of my favorite places, and I went there quite often. And I'm only an hour and a half away, so it's a you know relatively easy drive for me. Uh, it's, a, it's a very special place. I've gotten to stay at the, uh, is it called the Hotel Pemaquid? I think it is, right? Almost next door to the, the lighthouse. Yes, I stayed there this spring, right when the book was coming out. That was pretty neat, and it was you know a different situation because of COVID, but still, it was nice. 
Yeah, it's beautiful and uh, so nice being a, a short walk from the, the lighthouse at sunrise and sunset, especially. Before we talk some more about the lighthouse and your book, I'd like to maybe talk a little bit more about your background. You've taught history and you're also a photographer, and I'm sure all that came into play when you did this book. And uh, you've had 17 books published in all, is that right? Yes, I have. And this particular one, I'm actually doing some more related work, but I wanted this one to come out before the books I'm working on now because my brother, and like I said, if you read the dedication in the front, um, you probably read where he has an incurable autoimmune disorder. Yes. So he may not be able to come back to Maine. He may, we actually talked about it when I went to visit him recently. He lives in Kentucky now. He said, actually, the book made him really sad when he read that. He loved it a lot. But he said, well, he really would like to try to come back next summer. So hopefully he's able to do so. But I don't know. Yeah. So I do some awareness for Wegener's granulomatosis or granulomatosis with polyangitis, which is what Wegener's is also known as. And I just want to make certain that this book got out before he died. And it did. And he was very happy with it. We can't. We don't have time to talk about all seventeen of your books, but <laughs> have there been maybe uh, two or three that especially stand out that really have a special place in your heart? They're all special, obviously, because I'm. I have a doctorate in history. It came from the, you know, my doctorate's from the University of Maine in Orono. Um, my master's degree and my bachelor's degree are from the University of Montana in Missoula. I'm the kind of historian who does who does a couple of things. One. One thing is I tend to walk a lot where I am. I hike a lot depending on where I am. I take a lot of pictures. I talk to lots of people. So they're all kind of special just for the actual, the act of writing the books. But a couple of them that have sort of been in the work in a sense for 20 years that have come out recently are uh, my book, Garden Cemeteries of New England, which came out last year from Downey's Books, which is now a subsidiary of Roman and Littlefield. That had its roots in a book I did for Mount Hope Cemetery of Bangor, which is a really popular book around here. As a matter of fact, they keep selling out of books, and we might come out with a third version soon. But I went to cemeteries throughout New England, did lots of photography, but garden cemeteries were meant like they were like actually America's first parks. They were meant to be places for the living to enjoy as well as a place to bury the dead. Mm -hmm. So I'd wanted to do something with that for a long time. And the other one, I started going down to the Seeds of Peace camp about 20 years ago. And the title of that book is Changing the World, Two Kids at a Time, Timothy P. Wilson and the Seeds of Peace. I don't know if you know about the Seeds of Peace organization, but they bring together teenagers from warring parts of the world. They also have a big American delegation and a main one. And Tim Wilson has sort of been the director of the camp as well as involved with um, civil rights measures for a long time. And that one, I actually donated the e-rights to the book to the Maine State Library mm. so that they could make it available to kids around the world for free in case they were in a place where they could not buy the book. But there will be a hard copy coming out later. Probably locally, the most popular one besides the Mount Hope Cemetery history is Public Enemy Number 1, The True Story of the Brady Gang. That, that sort of traces their history back to the Midwest and the shooting down of a couple of members in Bangor, Maine. Right. Um, and a, another one that draws upon my social history roots would be Working in Paradise, Burning in Hell, Women in Maine's Working Class Dance Industries. 
you know, discusses women who were involved in dancing for a living. And the title comes from a place, there was a, a dance pavilion called the Paradise near Bangor. It was in Hamden, Maine, and it burnt down and killed a few of the dancers there. And this was a really, it was a way that you could earn your living, but it wasn't an easy way. So I trace it all the way back into the mid-1800s through various, various forms and so forth. You know, I've done several types of books. A lot of them are based in Maine. Most of them are probably based in Maine, but some of them, you know, like the Lighthouse book, in a sense, I tied it to changes, developments in other parts of the country, as well as throughout Maine. And some of my other books do the same kind of thing. Obviously, your personal connection that you talked about and your your brother and and everything uh, played a a big role. But I'm wondering uh, if there's other factors that led you to writing a book about Pemaquid Point Lighthouse. And part two of that question is, were you a lighthouse buff before you started this project? Yes, I have an interest in other lighthouses. It It only grew during the course of doing the Pemaquid Point Lighthouse book. As you'll see, there are lots of photographs of other main lights in that book. So I think I've been to all of the main land-based lights, ones you could reach easily, or maybe not even easily, but reach by land, as well as some of the island lights. And in the last couple of years, I've become really interested in the lighthouses in Canada, too, especially Prince Edward Island. So yes, I would say I'm very much um, a fan of lighthouses in all forms. Like I said, this is probably not going to be my only lighthouse book so there are a couple of other ones that i'll probably be doing in the near future um they tend to like as you know (laughs) people tend to publishers tend to say just one book at a time please let's see how this one goes and we'll go to the next one so there were three in particular that i was interested in decided to do this one simply because of the timing and my brother's help but yes lighthouses are absolutely wonderful there actually appear in a couple of my other works that are ongoing that are not even necessarily lighthouse-specific, but they're community histories, I guess you could say. Right. So they do appear in some of the other ones also. How and where did you do your research for the book? I would say it was my training, but I can remember my, one of my professors in Montana arguing me about the way I did this. But I just, on principle, I always do my primary research first. In other words, I will look at primary original documents whenever I can. And of course, one of the valuable places, which is really a wonderful thing about Pemaquid Point in particular, is that they have a lot of valuable materials right there on site. So some of my research was done at Pemaquid Point itself, especially lists of things that were going to and from the lighthouse. They had some accident reports of shipwrecks and so forth. So that was really great. And also, not to be left out of this, even though the formal training is a historian might send me in certain directions for research, like I said before, I'm a person who's very much involved with the actual location or the people there on the ground. So Pemaquid, you know, you learn about a place just by going there. So I went a lot just to keep my eyes open as well as for the research itself. Mm -hmm. But other places that were valuable, well, by the way, I've read some of your books and they're wonderful and I did them you on a few things. Thank you. Um, so um, the Maine State Library has holdings that I use their library for books primarily, but the holdings of the University of Maine, I use their special collections room fairly often, as well as their microfilm holdings. To a lesser extent, I did that at the Bangor Public Library too, but microfilm gives you also primary research material because 
for the accident, say, you know, shipwrecks, I was able to get, you know, this is what the people thought about it at the time. This is what they reported, sometimes erroneously, but this is what they reported and that sort of thing. So microfilm is really valuable, newspaper print especially. I scoured a lot of used bookstores to get all sorts of books, and, and kind of this is what I do. <laughs> you know, Every time I write something, I end up get, trying to get a hold of every book I possibly can on the subject, even right. if it's not going to be used directly. Um, I did use the Internet to a certain extent after I'd done the other things. The U.S. Lighthouse Service records in particular, especially on personnel, and I was able to do a few interviews as well. That was, those were the main sources. Well, it's, uh, like I said, you certainly did a thorough job. Uh, so if we could talk a, a little bit about the, the history of the lighthouse just for a few minutes. Uh, could you uh, tell us what were some of the, the factors that led to the establishment of a lighthouse in the first place at Pemaquid Point? Lighthouses essentially were built primarily to protect not people, but ships and their cargo. And Maine had a very vigorous shipping industry in the 1800s. And... Um, there was a need for a lighthouse at Pemaquid. People had known it since the 1600s. You know, Caucasians, when they came here, said, realized that this could be a potentially dangerous place situated where it is on the end of the peninsula. There was a need to guard a couple of bays, and um, but it had to wait its turn, basically, because, you know, it kind of, you know, the southern part of Maine was emphasized first, and there were lighthouses built in that era, there was, it was like a really vigorous time of building lighthouses, and Pemaquid had to wait its turn. But it was very clear that there is, as you know, that big projection into the sea, which is, can be extremely hazardous, has proved itself to be so. And it's really only, I would say, to the credit of lighthouse personnel and the lighthouses themselves that there haven't been more wrecks at that location. Oh, for sure. And as you, as you know, the first one when it was built, it didn't stand long, and they had to rebuild it again a little bit later. What are some of the stories of the lives of keepers and families at Pemaquid Point Lighthouse that stand out for you that you uh, research for your book? Each one, you kind of, the materials for an individual person are not necessarily extensive. If you're a historian and you want to make certain, you know, that this is accurate, but what really emerges is, is sort of the way of life of all the keepers and their families when they had them. I found um, one of the things I found really intriguing was simply looking at the dynamics of um, lighthouse personnel in the sense that they could be moved around, not necessarily wanting to be moved around. And you could trace, especially through those um, U.S. records that I referred to, the lighthouse service, you could trace, you know, a family or an individual through many, if they served at three or four lighthouses, you could track them that way. And I simply found that whole lifestyle. And, um, and in Maine, you know, they commented, and by the 1850s, you could stand in one part of Maine and maybe see, you might not really see them, but you knew they were close by. Like one person said, one of the lighthouse keepers said that you could see basically 12 um, lights up mm. and down the coast from the Pemaquid area. Most famous, probably as far as Pemaquid goes, was Marcus Hanna. He was known, actually, probably, as far as fame goes, more for the, his time at Two Lights at Cape Elizabeth, because right. in 1885, he managed to help save two men there. But one of the interesting things there is you could see then the family dynamics really closely, because his wife also became a keeper, or his, you know, the secondary keeper, as did his son. So that was interesting. 
Pemaquid did not have any female keepers per se, but when a male keeper, if he was married, the women at that light, as well as at others, was expected to help out. And being at Pemaquid, of course, they often did have lots of people drop in on them during the season because people then, as now, are drawn to lighthouses. So it was a interesting way of life and um, incredibly hard. Yeah, I imagine probably right from the start, it must have been somewhat of a tourist attraction because it's relatively easy to get to compared to a lot of the uh, offshore lighthouses in Maine. Yeah, so people went and they went to see the lighthouse. They went to talk to the keepers who, you know, sometimes that was actually quite a strain on their day if they had to stop and talk to tourists. Some of them, you know, or their spouses sometimes, you know, worked in the communities. Like a couple of people at Pemaquid worked as school teachers as well. They helped with the local education system. Some of them also, as you know, kept animals. Actually, in Pemaquid, it was more common than not for people to keep animals while they were there. They might have chickens, they had sheep, they had, you know, whatever, as well as small gardens and that kind of thing to augment what they were able to get from the lighthouse service to eat. So there was a lot to see if you went to the lighthouse. Yeah, <laughs> You could yeah. see basically a, a, wor- a working farm of sorts as well as a lighthouse. So, yeah, yeah, it was very popular early on that people were coming in. And one of the presidents went to Pemaquid Point, too, to see what it was going on. And uh, an interesting thing. You mentioned earlier that there is a long history of shipwrecks around Pemaquid Point. You wrote about some of them in your book. What are some of the more memorable shipwrecks that happened uh, around there? Well, the, the most memorable one before the lighthouse was actually built happened in 1635. Then it kind of set up a justified fear of the location, I guess you could say, when the Angel Gabriel wrecked. At that point, it was an interesting one because the people actually had disembarked. They were planning on settling in the New World when a storm came up and destroyed their ship, and they lost some cargo and so forth, and um, a couple of people who stayed on ship as well. And then in the 1880s, 1890s, after the um, lighthouse was built, there were several little shipwrecks nearby. In one case, the uh, locals were able to go out and get coal for their heating needs for the reason for the season. Um, but the biggest one and the most well-known one is certainly the one of September 1903. Um, in this case, two ships sank at Pemaquid. The storm kind of caught them both. I know you've been out there, but some of your listeners may not. There are actually two little points at Pemaquid, and there was some debate originally of, as to where to build the lighthouse and which one it would have served better. But the decision was made way back in the 1820s that to build it where it presently is because they thought, you know, there was a better view up there. But at any rate, that night in September of 1903, one person decided there's like a little inlet, not inlet, a little bay in between, and one person decided that he was on the two rocky side, that he would do better if he went around to the other side. So he was basically just within the realm of safety and trying to move the ship to safety, and both of them crashed on the rocks. Um, About 15 people's lives were lost. In a couple of instances, people heard them crying, and one of the captains drowned in front of some of his um, crew. And it was, you know, really, it was a massive storm. This was not the only shipwreck on the main coast at the time, but it was one that probably went down in history because it's the most well-known one, simply because of the number of people who died. Bodies washed up at shore. One person wasn't found until the next year, and they had a big funeral nearby, and the locals had one for those who you know, those who died. And it was really probably the most well-known one on the point. 
another little thing that ties in with that story and is that one of the people that was there on the shore who tried to help rescue the people who were still trying to get to land, he himself washed up on the shores of Pemaquid a couple of decades later of a gunshot wound. And they didn't really know what had happened to him first with this whole mystery involved. But one of those men that was out there on the shore later died there himself. And um, another one of the crew members who did manage to make it to safety that night died the next time he went out to sea, basically. Mm. And he kind of predicted that. So it was just, it, it sort of really, you know, touched everybody on that strip of land on the main coast to lose that many people in one night as well as the towns that lost their men. So it was pretty tragic. Several of these shipwrecks, there'd be shipwrecks up and down the coast too. So um, one of the more interesting ones was when somebody sort of, uh, someone took off, they thought in a storm and they didn't know what happened to them and they ended up near Boston. (laughs) Nobody knew where they had gone for a long time Mm -hmm. because they basically got caught in the waters and they couldn't turn around. So they just went with it and left. But during another storm, Pemaquid Point Lighthouse was one of the first, uh, maybe the first lighthouse in Maine to be converted to automatic operation in 1934. Not too long after that, ownership of the property, except for the lighthouse tower itself, was turned over to the town of Bristol. And the Fisherman's Museum eventually opened in the Keeper's House. I'm sure a lot of people listening have visited there. There's also an art gallery on the property. I'm wondering if you Mm -hmm. uh, would have any comments on the museum, unique little museum there, and the town's stewardship of the the park and and all the the property there at Pemagood Point. Actually, the townspeople were very concerned when it was announced, when automation in general was announced, because they, you know, they knew that some lighthouses would close, some would stay open, um, and there was some concern as to what was going to happen to the light at Pemaquid. And then after they realized it was not, it was going to be automated. In other words, the lightkeeper would no longer have a place there, although there would be caretakers, and it was a caretaker who would wash up ashore there quite a bit later. Some people in the area were concerned, like, if this becomes private or maybe somehow it closes altogether, we won't be able to go out to see that beautiful main coast anymore. We may not have direct access to the ocean there. So there was some concern about that. And the townspeople were interested almost immediately in the possibility of purchasing the property and were able to do so. It took a little bit longer, but the museum is a wonderful little asset because it shows, you know, fishing gear actually was in the museum that I was able to do some research. Um, Upstairs, there's an apartment that people can rent and it supposedly is haunted. I haven't spent the night there. I did spend the night at the Bristol Hotel, just what, a two minute walk away, something like that right outside of the gates. But so the museum adds a lot to it. And even this year, you know, I was able to go down briefly and, they're very welcoming to people doing research. I don't know how many people go there to do research, but you probably have and I have. And so the town maintains the grounds and in return, there's a small fee to drive in and stay, but it's definitely worth it. And it is worthwhile to go up when the Friends of the Lighthouse have the tower open. You might realize you need more leg power than they think you do going up, but (laughs) it is definitely well worth going up. But the view is Mm -hmm. just the experience, yeah. I was going to mention that the Friends of Pemaquid Point Lighthouse is a chapter of the American Lighthouse Foundation. And actually, in recent years, they've opened the tower every single day uh, from May to October, which is fantastic. One thing about, Mm -hmm. about climbing that lighthouse, once you get up the stairs, the 
the trap door or what historically was known as the scuttle where you go through uh, mm-hmm. from the ladder up into the lantern room. It's one of the more difficult ones. It's kind of small, a little, <laughs> little tricky. Yeah, I, I know. I think that that was like sort of like I've gone up to a few others and I think that sort of made me think, oh dear, what's going to happen at the top of this one? Um, but yeah, the scuttle is a little tricky. It's certainly doable and I have been up there a couple of times and you're right, it is open every day. Well, of course, in, at Pemaquid, you've also got the, the beautiful old fourth-order Fresnel lens. Combined with the view of the area there, it's certainly worth uh, climbing that lighthouse. Right. And, they, and, if, and if you are sort of a person who can get there and don't feel you can make it up to the lighthouse, either because, you know, for whatever reason, they have a, a lens in the museum as well that you can look at, which is really nice. It's not quite the same thing as seeing it in action, but it's, it's there and you can see it. So... Um, Absolutely. There's plenty to see, even if you don't climb the lighthouse there. Another mm-hmm. thing that makes Pemaquid Point special is the uh, what seems to me to be pretty unique uh, geology, the rock formations there, and the fact that you can actually walk around on the rocks uh, to look at the, the beautiful views and to get different photographic views of the lighthouse. But walking around on those rocks can be kind of dangerous, especially when the seas are rough. You write in your book uh, about uh, that and some of the incidents that have happened any comments on the dangers of walking around on the rocks there? <laughs> well, that's why when I started this out, I said my brother and I were down on the rocks, and I realized now we were probably too close to the end, but, you know, he's my big brother, and so I went with him. But, um, yes, it, and it happens fairly frequently, as a matter of fact. I mean, it, it's, I don't mean frequently as every month, but every few years it seems like somebody falls off the rocks or gets swept out, usually not to die, but people have died by being washed off by yes. rogue waves because if you get down far on the point, people think that, you know, the, the rock is basically dry except for that puddle down there. I'm safe and rogue waves have taken people off many times. Some people have been able to get back out, but there's an undertow also nearby, you know, on one side. And if you get caught in that, your chances are actually fairly slim. And so, you know, they really try to warn people, do not go too far down there. But um, it those rocks, the formations are indeed fantastic. Um, you can see different lines, different rocks coming together there. And that is one of the things that makes it perhaps the most, one of the most appealing lights is you can go down there. Not to the very end, though. Don't try to go to the end if it's your first time or second time or hundredth time. Don't go to the very end. But you can right. go down a ways and see the lighthouse, what it looks like, you know, from close to an ocean view, if not exactly an ocean view. And different vantage points on the property as well to get it from different angles. It's pretty special. I, I actually, I used to have a little video clip on my website, but I think I've taken it off where I, I was taken probably 25 years ago with my VHS uh, camcorder that showed some people way down on the rocks with giant waves splashing all around them. And I had the caption, uh, people where they should not <laughs> <No>. be. <laughs> yeah. And one of the times my wife yeah. and I visited there, there, a hurricane went by that day, and we went twice in the same day. We were there in the morning watching the big waves. They had, like, police tape, so trying to keep people off the, the rocks. But we went back later that day, and somebody told us that a woman had been swept off that day, but they rescued her. But she was quite badly hurt, but at least she was rescued. But so I, I, know I think it's... I know which one that is, yeah. I and can't... there was one instance where one family member went in and two others went to save the person, and out of the three, only two survived. Being swept off is dangerous, but going in to try to attempt a rescue on your own is also dangerous, because yes. people have died that way as well. Yeah. And that was actually something that was, you know, 
some of the lighthouse keepers did save people, not just people, you know, of shipwrecks, but at that lighthouse, some of the keepers have saved people just, you know, mm. from the rocks. It's not a good idea to underestimate nature when you're walking around those rocks. Right. I mean, the rocks are appealing, but they're also what makes it dangerous both to ships or in this case is, you know, now that most of the larger trading ships are no longer there, but there are still pleasure craft that have gotten into trouble near or at Pemaquid Point and throughout the region, actually. So Maine has about 63 to 68 lighthouses on its coast. It kind of depends on how you count them. There's a few different yeah. ways of counting them. I usually say 66, and I'm going to stick, stick with that. But uh, of all the lighthouses in Maine, the 60-something lighthouses in Maine, what do you think makes Pemaquid Point? Well, we've kind of talked about it to some degree, but is there one particular thing that stands out for you that makes Pemaquid Point Lighthouse so unique and special? I think part of it is just simply the way it's perched on the top of a cliff that you can actually get down. Um, if you go just outside the property, you can look at it from below at a different angle. To me, it's true everywhere in nature that it's never the same. But at Pemaquid, tremendous variation from season to season, day to day, time of day, um, weather conditions. And you can, you know, if you're careful, you can get there for most of the year. And it has some lighthouses. The tragedies are tragedies, and you certainly don't want to see any more of them, but the fact that there have been numerous shipwrecks has a historical allure that some of the more other lighthouses maybe do not have, or has a more in-depth history than some do in terms of you know things that have happened there and right. their place in lighthouse history. But it is simply in a spectacularly beautiful place. There's, there's no doubt about that. I think it's something of the long line of the rocks. And the building itself is in good shape and hasn't had to be replaced. The tower is one of the oldest around, as you've mentioned. And the lighthouse, the keeper's house as well, is, you know, historically not too much altered than it was in the late 1800s. You can see pictures of it. And speaking of photographs in the museum, they have one, um, and I've seen it elsewhere, that you can see people, like, out on those same rocks <laughs> having a picnic <laughs> you know, in the same dangerous conditions. So the allure is not, I mean, we romanticize the past, but it was a wonderfully romantic and beautiful place for the people who lived there in the 1800s as well. So it's it's long had that appeal. It's nothing new. It's ongoing. Oh, I agree with everything you said. I just want to give a plug to the American Lighthouse Foundation because uh, we mentioned before that a chapter of the American Lighthouse Foundation opens the lighthouse, but also there have been a number of restoration projects that have, that's the one of the reasons why the lighthouse is in such great shape today because of the, the foundation has mm -hmm. uh, completed several projects in, in, uh, in the last 10 or so years. So I have one final question for you for bonus points. Okay. Okay. What was your favorite part of working on your book on Pemaquid Point Lighthouse? Simply being there. Simply being there, I think, would have to be it. I mean, the research would have been interesting no matter what, but say if it had been, I don't know where I would put it, but most places I would find interesting. But simply being there and being able to walk around and meet people and climb that tower and look out over the ocean and look down at the rocks and, you know, see from different angles. Um, and because, like I said, I'm an hour and a half away, I was able to go during every season. But I think probably the best part was simply being there. And of course, once again, I met some wonderful people, the people at the gates, you know, from the town. They're, they were great. The people from the Lighthouse Association who sort of were letting people up and down the tower. They will give you a brief history 
of the lighthouse. They're really a great asset as well. The docents at the museum were also very friendly and, you know, willing to answer questions and, and they'll do that for anyone. There's a lot of good people there. So I would say probably just being able to go there in person over and over to take photographs, talk to people, to look at their resources and so on. And and by the way, even though I was using those resources, I said, this shouldn't be out here. This shouldn't be out there. Somebody could take it or it could get destroyed, you know, like this should be like an archival box. But still, it's, it's a wonderful place to go. I recommend it highly. <laughs> yeah, I, I second <laughs> I second that thought. Absolutely, it's one. But like, but mm-hmm. don't go on the day I'm going because I. Well, the other thing that has great appeal for me, which is kind of what I was joking me saying there, is, and I did say it in the book, I think, is that if you're willing to go, you know, in off seasons mm-hmm. or depending on the weather, different parts of the day, you can always find the time that you can basically have that whole spectacular place to yourself. You know, I've been out you know, on the cliff and on the upper parts of the rocks when there's absolutely nobody there. And it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. I I don't think I've been there when there was absolutely nobody else there, but I've I've been there when there are very few people. And it is, it is special because it does get kind of crowded sometimes, but even then it's, 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 uh, it's still very much worth visiting. Uh, I just Mm -hmm. want to mention again, your, your book, uh, Pemaquid Point Lighthouse is the title published recently by the History Press. Uh, we're actually mm-hmm. talking in late November, but this uh, people will be hearing this uh, in early 2021. 20, uh, so I guess I should say published publish last year by the time people hear this. But again, published by the History Press and readily available on Amazon and other online booksellers, I'm sure. Also, probably some of the bookstores in the Midcoast region. Yes, yes, and it should actually be available right next door to the lighthouse in the little gift shop that's owned the independently. Seag- um, seagull and shop. even though you the seagull shop, yeah, yeah. Um, and even if you are with the pandemic going on, the book industry has been adversely affected also. So some of you, you know, some of the bookstores are closed. Books are kind. Readers are definitely needed for all books out there because you know authors are like artists that they need people to see their stuff, but. Even though you might not see it until 2020, believe me, it's still new because I think there's, you know, the publishing industry has had some pains right now as well. So um, it will be out there and you can order through Amazon and please do. Yeah. And even if people listening have not been to Pemaquid Point Lighthouse, although if they haven't, I hope they can make it. But even if you haven't been there, it's uh, anybody who's interested in the lighthouses, this makes a nice addition to your lighthouse library. So thank you. You're very welcome. There are lots of illustrations as well, some historical that Mm -hmm. I was, you know, always asked permission to use them. Some are in the public domain, but um, also I did a lot of photography there. So you'll be able to see the lighthouse and the environs in all different weather seasons. You actually go into some history of lighthouses in general, too, which is nice uh, leading up to the. Mm -hmm. Well, the whole first chapter is basically about lighthouses, especially lighthouses in America, and then it sort of zooms in on Maine and eventually onto the Pemaquid region, and then it gets to the Pemaquid lighthouse itself, because it has a definite place in the network of lighthouses. If you just had one lighthouse, it would be great at Pemaquid, but there'd still be a massive problem for shipping around the very rocky Maine coast. So Pemaquid is part of a network of lights, but it was a very important light. So I, I feel like we could talk for hours about uh, one of my favorite places and one of your favorite places, uh, <laughs> but I think we're going to have to cut it off for now. But uh, I'm looking forward to seeing You mentioned you might be doing some more Lighthouse books, so maybe we can talk again in the future. Oh, I'd love to. 
Trudy Irene C., I want to thank you again for spending time with me today, and I want to congratulate you again on the book, Pemaquid Point Lighthouse, and I hope we can talk again sometime, so thanks very much. Well, that would be great. Trudy Irene C.'s book, Pemaquid Point Lighthouse, as well as many of her other books, is available from Amazon and other booksellers. Pemaquid Point is one of my favorite lighthouses. I usually visit there once or twice every year. Didn't get to this year because of the pandemic, but at least I got to visit vicariously by reading Trudy's book. How about you, Michelle? I imagine you've been there probably quite a few times. I've been there many times, Jeremy. It's one of my favorite lighthouses as well, and I also get there at least once per year. I haven't been this year at all, but I will get there again very soon. It's one of my favorite spots for sunrise photos. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I stayed at the Hotel Pemaquid one time right next door and got to be there at sunrise, which was just, just great. Uh, it is one of the most beautiful lighthouse locations. It definitely is. Thanks, as always, to all the volunteers, members, and staff of the United States Lighthouse Society. Be sure to check out the Society's website at uslhs.org. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider a donation to the U.S. Lighthouse Society to help support it. Thanks to everyone everywhere who works to preserve history. We're all on the same team. The architect and preservationist Max Page wrote, and I quote, We believe that by honoring the past, by protecting the key buildings and landscapes of our communities, telling their stories and keeping them in use, we build a more sustainable and just world. Without the evidence of the past and without examples of past achievements in architecture, our cities and towns would be lifeless, end quote. As always, thanks for listening and keep a good light. Out in the dark, I'm gonna let it shine. Out in the dark, I'm gonna let it shine. Out in the dark, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna.